Hey, you know, Jesus, great guy to talk about, the most famous sermon he ever gave, arguably, I think everybody would agree, so anybody does argue, uh, they're, they're, they're the rare one out there, was the Sermon on the Mount. For us, it takes up three chapters in our Bible, just one sermon that he gave. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And about the middle of it, he had been talking about all of these different things that we needed in life. You're going to need food, you're going to need clothes, you're going to need money, you're going to need all this stuff. And right in the middle of it, he just stops and says, but if you seek first the kingdom of God, all of this stuff will be added to you. Now, here's the cool part. He didn't say, if you seek first the kingdom of God, then you can go and seek all of these things because you're going to need to get them. He actually just said, look, if you just get God first in the right places in your life, all the rest of this stuff is going to be added. You're not even going to have to chase it. You're not going to have to work hard for it. You just get God in the right place. Everything else is going to be good. So, you know, if we were to, maybe we're going to make a series. What if Heath would let me come for like four or five weeks? And we were going to say, let's talk about getting God first in the right places of our lives. What would we talk about for these four or five weeks? And we'd obviously think, well, we should get God first in our day. I mean, come on, think about this. How how many times are we so busy? You wake up, last thing in the morning, you got to get your coffee. You're running behind. You got to get out the door. It's like, God, forgive me. I don't have time to to, to sit down and read the Bible or pray. I got to get to work. I got to get going. And, And it's really a crazy thought. That, hey, God, I can accomplish more by myself in the next 18 hours than I could if I had you with me and only did 17 and a half hours because I gave you that half hour. It's crazy. We all know that we'd accomplish more if we got God first in our day, right? You know, but we're all working on it, so I'm not going to ask you to raise hands on that. We're all kind of like, well, we'll get there. Uh, Obviously, we talk about making God first in our life. I mean, that's the whole reason we pray. It's the reason we fast. It's the reason we set aside things just to serve God. I mean, you know, the reason that Heath gave up a job at a church to come here and to start putting God first in his life. God said, do it. So, okay, this is what God says, do. And I know many of you moved too, and you were like, okay, I'm going to change jobs, and I'm going to, I'm going to come here and do this. We'd probably say, well, let's put God first in our finances. That, that's a good thing. We're, we're always going to talk about putting God first in our finances. But what I want to talk to you about today is one that is, is so often overlooked. When we talk about... Putting God first. This is one that doesn't usually uh, come up, and it wouldn't usually make the list. So uh, Heath introduced me, but he didn't introduce my wife, my wife Ramona over there. So everybody say hello to her. There you go. Uh, we have been, been married now 23 years, just about five weeks ago, so we're pretty excited for that, especially given the fact that about the first 10 to 12 years of our marriage, we couldn't stand each other. Oh, that's that's not an exaggeration. Who said that? There, you go. it's not an exaggeration. See, she, I got married when I was a missionary, so she's from Eastern Europe, and I'm from the South, and we, we couldn't be more different. I'm like a, a an OCD. Everything needs to be in order. Like I think you should be able to close your eyes in the dark, open the refrigerator, and pull out the ketchup. That's the way the world should be. Amen. Somebody's with me. I'm I'm just going to talk to you this morning. Okay, and um. And my wife is such a free spirit that her, she said, oh, it's all good, honey. It'll be just fine. And then, of course, that, that just kind of complicated some other things. And, and, and so we would get into these big fights. They started out as little fights, but pretty big fights. Matter of fact, I'll tell you the truth. She doesn't like when I tell people this. But we had planned on a four-week honeymoon because we were in Europe and we were just kind of bouncing around Europe. And uh, we, we didn't like each other so much that our honeymoon didn't even last two weeks. Like we literally just got into a big fight, said, pack the car, we're going home. And when we got done with that, I looked at her when I was back at her mother's house and I just said, I'm going back to the United States. You coming or not? That, that's how bad it was, even from the honeymoon. So we'd get into these massive fights, honestly, just because we were both broken. 
We're very, very broken people. This is for free if anybody's struggling with your marriage. We don't realize how much what happens to us before marriage affects the way that we interact with other people. And so every time we get into these fights, she always thought I was wrong. Can you believe that? I mean, I'm God's anointed. How can you think I'm wrong, right? Oh, by the, I love when y'all interact. So laugh if you want to laugh, cry if you want to cry. Just don't throw things. You can raise hands, you can clap, and do anything but throw things. Anyway. And so whenever we'd fight, I thought she was wrong. I thought she was the one that needed to change, and she thought I was the one that needed to change. And I thought that I had made a mistake, and she thought she had made a mistake. And I'm sure both of us thought, I know I thought at some point God would just have mercy and take one of us to heaven. I mean, come on, you know? Everybody's going to be happier that way. Whoever's here on earth, they don't have to deal with the other one anymore. The one in heaven obviously is happier. That's what the Bible says. We're going to have golden streets and be with God. It's going to be happier. We're going to be good. We all preach series on heaven. That's the way it's supposed to be. You guys are probably thinking that I want to talk to you about putting God first in your marriage, right? Come on. How many of y'all thought that's where that story was heading? Anybody? Yep. No. We should talk about that. We really should. But how many of you noticed the number of times I use the word thought? In that story. You see, that's what we actually overlook, is putting God first in our thinking. So, uh, to, before we get into Scripture, I just want to share with you a couple of nerd things. Actually, three nerd things. So, I did some nerd research, because there's always at least one or two nerds in the room. I happen to be one of them. Does anybody else want to identify me? Who likes nerd stuff? Nerd facts, History Channel fans? You're looking. Your eyes gave you away. You're like, who's going to raise their hand? I'm one of them, but I'm not raising my hand until I see another hand. Come on, man. You're a nerd with me. Check this out. Here's a couple of things about our thoughts that we need to know. First of all, there, it's been proven in, in this research that we've got these things in us, these neurochemical transmitters. They're called neuropeptides. And they get sent out to our body simply by thinking about stuff. And, and you know, we know that we think about what we think, but we don't realize how much our thinking actually affects stuff that we don't think about. So it affects everything, even like our digestion. So, you know, sometimes you go to a restaurant. You ever been to a restaurant and the, de- the minute you walk into the door, you're, you're ready to turn around? Like this thing's just a little sketchy from the beginning. It, it, like the, the chairs are a little sticky. The, the host is a little rude. You know, the table's like, did they, you know, th- just that whole thing. You're afraid to reach under the table to pull your chair up because you don't know what you're going to find there. The waitress is just as rude as the host was. You want to leave, but your spouse is like, oh, honey, it'll be fine. I had a friend at work who said it'll be great. And so you're already just getting a little antsy about this you look at the menu and there's nothing on it you want you know and and so no matter what you order is already going to be like your second choice and you're thinking this is just going to get worse by the minute and then you have to wait too long for your food and you're thinking i'm going to get sick in this place i guarantee i'm going to get sick this place is nasty i'm going to get sick in this place and guess what an hour later you're sick and you blame the food but what research proves is it might not have been the food at all could have been the best food in the world that you're Thinking about the place told your body that it wasn't going to digest this. Kind of crazy, isn't it? Here's another thing. We've got these these little uh, receptors on every cell in our body. Our bodies are made up of millions and millions of cells. And every single one of those cells needs stuff. And so it's got these little receptors that, that things come to. And they actually even accept Thoughts. This is crazy. You might have thought they only accepted proteins. They accept neuroproteins as well, things that you think. Okay, for those of you that aren't nerds, I see your eyes glossing over. Science class will only last three more minutes. Just hang on with me. This is going to matter. I promise it's going to matter in a minute, okay? But here's the thing. Your cells and the little receptors, they only receive one thing. They receive, this one receives whatever, like maybe happiness. This one receives like sadness. And this one receives whatever else it's supposed to. 
Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but your cells divide every two months. We're constantly reproducing ourselves, which is a good thing. If your cells stop dividing and multiplying, you die. And so our, our cells are always duplicating, but they're smart and they're economical. And so when they divide, they say, hey, you know what? This, this receptor, man, all this happiness that he's been getting, all of these, they haven't been getting anything. So when I reproduce myself, I'm going to make more happiness receptors because I've been missing out on all the happiness that you've been sending out to the body. I haven't been getting it. So when he reproduces himself as a cell, he puts more happy receptors on that, right? Anybody ever met somebody who's just like a happy, happy person all the time, no matter what? And that's the way they are. Every time they reproduce a cell, more happy receptors, more happy thoughts, more happy thoughts get received. The whole body is just happy and excited about it. Let me give you an analogy. If I own the city of Charleston, South Carolina, actually Wilmington's a good analogy. Y'all have ships here, right? Y'all have big ships that come into this place. It's a port city. Okay, so if I somehow owned all of Wilmington and I wanted to build new docks, I would only build docks for the kind of ships that come. I wouldn't build a dock for a cruise ship if a cruise ship never comes. Your cells do the exact same thing. And so here's the thing. If you're one of those really sad, sad people, and you keep sending out these sad thoughts and these pessimistic thoughts and these hopeless thoughts, your cells are going, man, I'm missing out on all this sadness. All this good sadness is going right by. So when I duplicate myself, I'm going to put more sad receptors. And then two months later, that cell says, well, there was still sadness missing me. I'm going to put more sad receptors on them. And then eventually you turn out like Eeyore. And you just go, well, don't make me laugh. I can't do this while I'm laughing. Not a very good tell, but I'll probably lose it anyway. I've been told my Eeyore sounds like Forrest Gump. I'm not really sure. <laughs> anyway, so hey, here's the point. Turn this around because every two months your cells are reproducing. If you choose to start thinking positive things, then your body will say, I'm missing all the happy thoughts, and you'll start reproducing the other direction. There are people who say, you know, I used to be happy. I used to be happy when I had that job. I used to be happy before we moved to this city. I used to be happy before I had this boss. I used to be happy before I had this spouse, whatever. You can get back to being the happy you when you stop blaming all those things. Okay, last one, last one. Everybody here? Last one? Eyes glossing over. One more. I don't know how they did this, but I don't need to know how because I'm not a scientist. I'm just going to tell you the results. They gave vials of DNA to 28 researchers, and then they tested what happened to the DNA based on what the researchers felt. When these research, you guys know what a DNA looks like, that little spirally code thing? When the researchers felt happiness and joy and peace, those little spirally DNA things actually relaxed and got longer. When those same researchers felt sadness and fear and stress and anxiety, those little DNA things spiraled up really tight. And in many cases, they completely shut off. They just quit working. Sometimes parts of our body do that. They just quit working. And then when those same researchers started feeling happiness and sadness, I'm sorry, happiness and, and joy again, they turned back on. Parts of DNA that had completely shut off suddenly turned back on and started working. Okay, science class is over. How crazy is all that stuff? That's pretty crazy. He thinks it's awesome. Well, here's the thing. None of that's crazy if you think about the fact that God made us. And the Bible is full of stuff about how our thinking will direct our lives. And so I want to walk you through just a couple of things the Bible says about that. If you've got your Bibles with me, we're going to jump to three different, just three sentences, but in three different places. We're starting in Romans chapter 12. If not, it's going to be on the screen right here with me. And Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed by acting like a really good Christian. But be transformed by behaving really, really well in public because the pastor might be watching. Or you are the pastor and the church people might be across the restaurant watching, you know. Be transformed by making sure you go to church at least three times a month even though you live next to the beach. You know, that kind of thing. Make this like that. That doesn't say that at all. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when Paul wrote this, he gave us two commands. There's two commands written in here. One of them is negative. There's a don't. One of them is positive. There's a do. And the don't is don't be conformed. You see, what that means is that we're all going to naturally mold to whatever's around us. It's what we do. If you grew up in an English-speaking home, you spoke English because it's what was around you. I'm an avid Duke fan. I'm sorry if I just lost half of the crowd. I know it's North Carolina. Do we have any? i got one Duke fan. I know, right? Anyway, you've got to love Jesus and just ignore the fact if you're a Tar Heel, you got to get over it and come back and just hang on with me. <laughs> She's shaking her head like, you're done, buddy. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, Moses down the street. They've got burritos for you. Whatever. Okay, here's the point, though. In my home, my kids are either Duke fans or not fans. Those are the only options. I buy them Duke clothes. We sit down and we watch Duke games. If they ever ask which team are we cheering for, we're cheering for that color blue, not that color blue. We don't ever cheer for the sky color blue. God's got the sky color blue. We don't want, no, no, no. Cheer for Duke. Because it's, and it's what they do. They either are Duke fans or they don't care about sports at all. Why? Because they grew up in my house. It's what we do. We naturally conform to what's around us. I mean, think about it. one of the things we do in America we love to do. It's the reason that we've got more restaurants than churches. We love to go out to eat. But why do we love to go out to eat? It makes absolutely no sense. You've got food in your house. You've got food in your house that is cheaper than the food you're going to go out to eat and pay for. You've got only food in your house that you like because nobody goes to the grocery store and buys food that they know they're going to go home and throw away because they don't like, right? So in your house, you have good food. You have cheap food. You have only the food that you like. In your house, you have food no one has dropped on the floor, picked it back up, put it on your plate. You have in your house food that no one has spit upon because they don't like how rude you were when they came to your table. No, no, no. In your house, good, safe, clean food, never touched the floor, never been spit upon. But you come home from a hard day's work and your spouse says to you, honey, what do you want to do i don't know let's go out to eat why because everybody does it's what we do our culture loves going out to eat and we talk all the time about this hey man have you been to that new restaurant no i gotta check it out and so we go out to eat we do the same thing when we go eat fast food everybody goes and gets a bacon double cheeseburger with mayonnaise that's how i eat them and you get a side of what fries why because everybody does it's the only way we do it if you were ever to go in there could I have a bacon double cheeseburger with mayonnaise and a side of zucchini I mean, they're going to think you're insane. They don't have it because no one does it because everybody conforms. It's what we do. And Paul is telling us, do not be conformed. You cannot be shaped to look exactly like everyone else around you. I need you to hear this sentence. We do what comes naturally unless we become something else. You see, you would think that sentence goes like this. We do what comes naturally unless we intentionally do something else. But it's not about what you do. It's about what you are. It's about what you become. And that's why he goes to the positive command that we actually have to be changed. Because we will do what comes naturally unless we become something else. So the positive command is do be transformed. So one more nerd moment, but not science class. This is Bible class. The word for be transformed there is where we get the same word metamorphosis. 
right? Metamorphosis. And so what that means is that we are supposed to be as different from the world by how we think as a butterfly is from the caterpillar they came from, right? Big, fat caterpillar, ugly, sitting on a limb. If it tries to jump off, it goes splat. Pretty butterfly, big wings, bright colors. It jumps off and it flies. How different are those two? And what Paul is saying is that who we are, our very nature should be as different as those two things are. And how? Simply by changing what's going on up here. By the renewal of our mind. And you'd say, why? Why does our mind need to be renewed? Well, because there was a before Jesus way of thinking. And there's supposed to be an after Jesus way of thinking. If we make Jesus our king, something is supposed to change up here that is supposed to affect absolutely everything else. If you are looking in your Bible, you can jump to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It's actually going backwards from where we were. If not, it's going to be on the screen. And here's the reason. What he said earlier, what we read earlier, was actually the end of something he was saying. He began long ago talking about the power of our thinking. And so this is what he says in verse 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And let's just stop right there. He's not talking about skin and bones. He's not talking about this stuff. When he's using the word flesh, he's talking about our human nature. He's saying, so for those of us who live according to our human nature, that means doing what I want to do the way I want to do it because this is what I want. Come on, I've got young kids. Anybody know you got kids and that's just how they are? It's what I want to do, you know, that kind of thing. It's When we set our minds on that, that's what we live according to. But for those of us who live according to the Spirit, and if you're looking in your Bible or on the screen, you'll notice it's a capital S. Anytime your Bible has a capital S, we didn't put that there. It represents the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. And so it says, but those who live according to the Holy Spirit, well, then they set their minds on what? Whatever the Holy Spirit wants, the things of the Spirit. Now, look, anybody ever been to a different church, different kind of church? There's more than one kind of church in the world, isn't there? Matter of fact, you just drive down the street and you're going to see all these different signs and all these different denominations and all different looking buildings. You're going to say, what, what is the difference in all these? Well, there's a ton of differences and we don't have time for that this morning. But I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that every Christian church in the world agrees on. Every Christian church in the world agrees on a couple of things. One of them is this. If you make Jesus your king, if you recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the Spirit of God moves in. Every single Christian church in the world will agree that the Holy Spirit lives in, inside of anybody who says Jesus is my king. And so what Paul is saying is like, there was a you before the Holy Spirit lived inside of you, and there's supposed to be a different you because of how you think after the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Something is supposed to be completely different. And that's why he goes on to say, to set the mind on that human nature. The flesh is death. If we keep living according to what I wanted before Jesus, that just brings death. But if I live according to the Holy Spirit and me and what he wants now that I follow Jesus, well, then what do I get? Life and peace. You see, my human nature is you hurt me and I'm angry. and I'm going to prove it to you every time I see you. Every time I see you, I'm going to give you an ugly look. I'm going to walk the other way. I'm going to put nasty things about you on Facebook because you did something to me. You hurt me. That, that's human nature, isn't it? We see it all the time. How many of you have those toxic friends on like Instagram and Facebook? And Well, you know, I've got that friend. It's always anonymous, but we all know who they're talking about, that kind of thing. That's our human nature. And, and, and when we say, I can't forgive, well, that's the death of a relationship. Let me think about it. 
How, have you ever been really hurt by somebody and you stayed angry at them and, and there was a little bitterness going on? You don't have to raise your hand because I know none of us want to admit to it. Have you ever tried to stay friends with that person? It doesn't work. It ends up being the death of a relationship. But if we can get past our human nature and, and we can accept the fact that the Spirit of God in us says, well, we need to forgive, not because they didn't do anything wrong, but we need to forgive because we've been forgiven. It's that simple. We've been forgiven. And what that person did to us will never compare to the offense that we've made against the perfectly holy God. But that's a whole other message for another day. And so when our, our, our hearts are set on what the Holy Spirit is set on, then we say, I can forgive. I will forgive. And that becomes life and peace, not only to that relationship, but to your soul as well. When we say things like, God can't fix this. Because my human nature is to believe this is just horrible. It's never going to change. It's just wrong. This isn't going to get any better. God can't fix this. The death of maybe a marriage. Maybe whatever it is you're thinking about. We say, I'll never succeed. It's the death of a vision. We say, my life doesn't matter. It's the death of a destiny. I'll tell you, the number one thing that I do as a pastor, I'm going to bet money the number one thing Heath does as a pastor because every pastor I've talked to, this is the number one thing we do, is we try to help people line their thinking up with what God's Word says about them and about the world and about himself and about life. I've never had someone make an appointment, sit down and say, Pastor, I'm here today to talk to you about the four views of the apocalypse and how chapter 18 of Revelation plays out. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that. Because no one cares. But what they care about is they, they make an appointment to sit down and say, I'm just feeling so hopeless. I said, well, let's talk about why you're feeling hopeless. Because, you know, the God of hope sits on the throne. So what, what are you thinking about your life that's causing you to feel hopeless? It's what we do. And it's what Paul's telling us to do is to transform our thinking. So it starts with this. Last thing, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive. This is the most important thing. Where do we get that knowledge of God? Because it says we've got to destroy arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. This is our knowledge of God. This is all we have. This is where God tells us who he is. This is where God tells us what he wants. This is everything. And, and this, anything that stands contrary to this in our mind, he's telling us to take captive. Take captive what? Lofty opinions. I love those words. Lofty opinions. You know the best thing that we can ever do is, is get honest with ourselves and, and realize that the stuff that's going on up here that is not here, is nothing more than an opinion. Nothing more. And yet for all too many of us, it becomes our truth. And, and it stays. But think about this. How do we take our thoughts captive? I mean, sometimes it's a little just hard to do. I like, I'm like. i a very practical person. I like being a practical kind of preacher. I like, like people to walk away with what to do. And taking a thought captive is a little like, <laughs> how do you do that? Anybody ever wondered kind of how you do that? So the best illustration I can give you is, is my life as a parent. I'm sure none of you have this problem because you're wonderful parents. My wife and I, the last thing we'll ever do is do a child-rearing seminar. Like, like oh my gosh. Anyway, so we've got four children. And you know, when you go to the store with one kid because you only got one kid, that's easy. Because they're, they're strapped in a little stroller or something. If they scream, put a pacifier in their mouth. They can't do anything. I mean, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're a baby. They're the only one. And then someday you get a second one, right? And so 
the, the second one now is in the stroller, and the first one, well, there's two of you, you can still deal with that kid. But someday you end up like us, and we have four kids. And, and there was a point where we had an eight, a three, a two, and a newborn. And the eight-year-old was just old enough and foolish enough to make the three-year-old and the two-year-old want to run and scream and yell and chase them around. The all that kind of craziness, you know, because they were all boys. Only the, the last one is a little princess. God blessed us. It's, it's, it's the moral of the story. Don't give up. A good one is coming. I'm just kidding. I love my sons. I love my sons. <laughs> but you know how you're, you're in the store and the kids are just running. We've got an alien in our church. I'm just kidding. It's one of our elders' wives. And she's, that she raised five kids, homeschooled them all. And she said, well, I would go to the store and my kids would walk from oldest to youngest in a perfectly straight line behind me. I'm like, you're not human. You're not human. Because me, I go to the store and I look around and go, where are my kids? And I can usually find my kids by the sounds of things crashing on other aisles better than anything. So here, here's the point, though. You, you see your kids and you stop running. Come over here. Stop running. Hold the car. Stop. Hold, put your hand on that car. Stop. And you do that, right? I mean, come on. I told you. Y'all, y'all can be good parents. I'll admit not to being the great parent. And at some point, you get tired of saying, stop running, stop running, stop running. And you walk over and you grab their hand and you squeeze it just tight enough. To leave no evidence for DSS. <laughs> and they say, I'll stop running. My hand hurts. I'll stop running. My hand. Oh, I know your hand hurts. And I know you'll stop running because I've taken you captive. And I will not let you go. And the other kids go, because they at least don't have a bruise on their arm yet, you know? what it means to take things captive so we have to answer the question what do we take captive let's go back to i just love those words lofty opinion how do you know when what's going on up here is just an opinion well again it's anything that stands contrary to what this says about you to what this says about god to what this says about others Anything else is just an opinion. I would love to spend the rest of the morning telling you every opinion so you can just write them all down and you'd be ready to to just go out the door and grab those things. But the reality is our human nature has been making so many opinions that stand contrary to this for millennia. We don't have time. We wouldn't go home. I, I could just tell you opinions raised against the knowledge of God all the way until next Sunday, and we'd just be scratching the surface. When I was writing the message, I felt like God gave me five opinions. It's five opinions that I run into the most as I talk to people about the struggles they're having in their lives, the things that they're running into. Honestly, the five opinions I know I've dealt with on my own, and I would bet probably you too. One of the first opinions that shows up more than anything else is, you know, God won't do good, or I just can't trust him to do good. And we get that opinion because there was something in our lives that we thought had to go that way. And God didn't answer that prayer. And it went another way. And, well, we've never really accepted that God knows better. And so that opinion gets the label of worry or fear. The need to control. Because I'm of the opinion that I can't let God be in charge of that. 
I've got to make sure this works. I've got to have that job. God's got to show up this way. This check has to show up by this day. This has to happen. I can't trust God. Another opinion that shows up a lot is the, well, God just doesn't really care. It's a big world. A big world. People have been around for thousands of years. There are billions of them on the planet right now. How could God care about this little thing? We label that opinion as despair, hopelessness. Maybe the opinion is, I can be satisfied through what I taste or touch or see or feel. We label that one as lust. Maybe the opinion is simply, you know, God God hasn't really blessed me enough. I mean, he's blessed me some, but have you seen the neighbor's new car? Have you seen our... My sister or my brother-in-law's new new house. Or seeing the vacation my co-worker's taken. I mean, God's blessed me some. But he really hasn't blessed me enough. You know, it's the opinion that stuff just makes my life better. Newer stuff, more stuff, better stuff. The category for that is just want. At some point we just have to call it what it is. We just want. We just want. Never enough. And the last one that I run into so much as a pastor is the opinion that what I believe and what I feel is just so much more real to me than what God's Word says. And if you, if you want to try to say, no, no, I never struggle with that one, well, then you get to preach next week. Because I don't know anybody that doesn't struggle with feeling like what they're going through is way more real than the promises that haven't shown up. And sometimes that, that it just is so real. It's so hard for us to let it go and to embrace what God says and change what we think. And that fits in the category of lies. So just like those kids that are running in the store, the problem we have sometimes, if you've ever been shopping in a store, especially if you're a parent shopping in a store, is you hear some kids running around, you hear some stuff banging, and you hear some stuff going wrong, and you're thinking to yourself, why doesn't somebody deal with those kids over there? Why doesn't why does somebody make their child behave and stop running? And then it occurs to you, those are my kids. And this is really the answer to the dilemma Paul gives us. Because at some point, we have to recognize those are our opinions that are running wild. You see, until you call it that, you can just keep thinking, well, you know, you know God doesn't really love me. You know, he loves the pastor. You know, God doesn't really Until you go, wait a minute. God doesn't love me. That's, that's not in here. Matter of fact, in here it says God loves me so much that he sent his only son to die the most painful death humanity's ever come up with for me. You know what I need to do? I need to acknowledge that is my opinion. Wrong opinion. That's my kid on the next aisle making that. I need to go and I need to grab that thought by the hand and say, you will stop running around up there. When you wake up, for some of you, you wake up every single day, oh, just wish God loved me. No! You will not run wild 
anymore. Some of us, we wake up every day. My spouse will never change. No! I'll never amount to anything. No! We've got to start grabbing these lofty opinions and saying, you will not run wild in my mind anymore. See, the truth is we want our lives to change. We want the results of our thinking to change. But we don't want our thinking to change. And it goes like this. As really good Christians, we wake up every day and we pray, God, I'm just feeling so down. I just, I just really pray you would give me hope and, and just, just, just give me something to be positive and happy about and make my life better. Amen. And we get dressed, we get ready to go to work, and we get in the garage. Man, I hate this old car, stupid old car. I wish I had a better car. I start driving to work. I hate to drive to work. Crowded and traffic. People always cut me off. Can't stand this. You get to work. Oh, here we go again. I hate my job. Eight hours in this place. Oh, and here's my boss. I hate my boss. Oh, but God, please take away my hopelessness. Seriously? Like, give him a fighting chance. Like, walk out to your garage and go, hey, I've got a car that I don't have to walk to work in the rain. It's ugly, but it's dry. You know? Well, I've got a boss that I don't like because they don't know Jesus and it gives me an opportunity to share Jesus with them. But at least I've got a job so I can make money and take my family on vacation. You can change how you think. We want God to change the results of our thinking. But we don't want to help the process. Back to the story I was telling you at the beginning. Because my wife and I spent 10 to 12 years of our marriage, and I'm not joking when I say like, Really not doing well. Like, matter of fact, I, I knew I was called to do this at 16 years old. I knew at 16 I was called to preach. But I didn't get to do it until way into my 30s because my marriage was disqualified. So that's how bad it was. But because of what we've been through and because of what God's done in our marriage, I mean, like, we love each other now. Like, we're happy. We enjoy time together. I am happy to leave my four kids with a babysitter and go out with my wife. <laughs> we have a great time. And so we have been blessed by God with the ability to really help couples. They're struggling in their marriage. We can really help people because there's nothing anybody can bring that we, we haven't. We've been there, done that, got the T-shirt a couple times over. But then there are still people we can't help. Because they'll come and sit down and say, well, just, just tell us what you did. Just, just, just tell us what, what changed your marriage. Did you see a counselor? What, what counselor was it? Because we don't care if they're expensive. We'll go to that counselor. We didn't see a counselor. Did you go to a seminar? Just tell us when the seminar is. If it's in California, we'll fly there. We'll do whatever it's at. Whatever you did. We'll we didn't go to a seminar. You know what we did? You know what changed our marriage? We changed how we thought about our marriage. I wish I could give you a flashier answer. We changed how we thought about each other. We changed how we thought about ourselves. We changed how we thought about why God would put two opposites together. We changed what we thought about believing that the opposite, therefore, meant wrong. We changed what we thought about the whole point of marriage on planet Earth anyway. And as we continued to change our thinking... Our marriage radically shifted. And when we say that to some couples, they just look at us. Well, that's not going to help us because my husband's just wrong. 
Well, my wife is just, she's just a witch, man. You just don't know anything. That's just not going to help us. As long as you think your wife is a witch, nothing is going to help you. As long as you think your husband is always wrong, nothing is going to help you. No counselor in the world. I want to leave you with this thought. The life you want, we've all got one, right? Just let it come to mind. The life you want, not limited by your circumstances. It's limited by what you think about your circumstances. What do you think of that? The life you want is not limited by your circumstances. It's limited by what you think about your circumstances. Now, I know as I say that, some of you want to slap me. Because you say, uh-uh. You don't know what I'm going through. You're going to try to tell me all I have to do is think differently about my circumstances? You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what my bankruptcy attorney said. You don't know what my spouse said as they packed the car and left. You don't know what my doctor said about stage four. You don't know where I am. You don't know my circumstances. How can you tell me if I just change how I think about them that my life will be different? You don't know. I'm going to tell you what. No, I don't. But a couple of months ago, a guy in our church wanted to have lunch with me. And uh, I, I didn't know everybody in our church at the time. Um, and uh, so I, I, he is new to the church. And, and I, I honestly was meeting him at a restaurant, and my assistant gave me a name. And I, I expected a different person, to be honest, because I thought the name went with a different face. So anyway, got there and figured out who it was and sat down to have lunch. And he started telling me a story. He said, I just, I just want you to know my story. And he's about 31 right now, but about 10 years ago when he was 21, he was headed home from a date with his girlfriend. He was in college. And on the interstate, he hit a tire and his car spun out. And he went, landed over in, in the, uh, the grass on the side. And so he, he got out to see if his car was drivable. He walked around his car. He looked. He realized his car wasn't drivable. So he went back to his car to reach in and get a cell phone to call for help. And as he got his cell phone... And looked back out of his car, he saw headlights. And so he attempted to jump, but it didn't do any good. He, his physical human body, was hit by an 18-wheeler. He was later told by the police the 18-wheeler was doing over 90 miles an hour, and the driver was texting and didn't even have a clue what happened until it was too late. When he was hit, his left leg was immediately severed, and his right leg was mangled so bad it had to be amputated later. And as I sat at the lunch table listening to his story, I said, because I just assumed what every other person I'd ever talked to would have said. I said, are you angry at God? And he said, why would I have been angry at the only one who was going to help me through this? Are you kidding me? That's where you were at 21? You've got that kind of maturity? I said, well, well at, at least you probably were upset for a while with God that happened to you when you were so young. I mean, come on, like, you know, it happens when you're 80. You've at least, you know, done all you wanted to do, played with your kids, life was good, you know, whatever. He's like, no, no, no. I was grateful it happened when I was so young that I was able to recover and learn to walk with prosthetics and play games with my kids in the yard. Like, there's nothing I can say to him that he hasn't figured out how to think about God's blessing in the midst of it all. Are you kidding me? Here's a man who at 21, an athlete at the start of football season, lost both of his legs. 
And he says, God has blessed me. So no, I don't know your circumstances. But I know that the life we want does not come from our circumstances. It comes from what we think about our circumstances. I'd like to close by praying for you guys because I'm assuming you're like me and you're human. And everything I just said sounds really good, but it's really, really hard to do. So is it okay if I pray for you guys? God, we thank you so much that you are a good God, a merciful God, who knows that we are human. Who know, you, you made us. And you know that we honestly struggle to put into practice these very things. That it is so hard for us to take our opinions captive and to see only the truth of your word about ourselves, about you, about others, about life. But God, right now, I pray that you'll help us with that. I pray that because your spirit dwells inside of us, that you will help us overcome the natural thinking that comes to us as humans. That you will cause us to recognize when a lofty opinion is running around in our mind, masquerading as truth. And we will grab it. And we will call it for what it is. And we will take it captive and say, no longer will you rule my life. No longer will you rule me. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to bring to our our attention, the thoughts that are not from you, the thoughts that bring death, the thoughts that are contrary. And help us to be people who take our thoughts captive so we can be more like you and be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.